Hi, welcome to Disrupt. Today we are talking to a couple people from Smart Ice. Smart Ice Sea Ice Monitoring and Information Inc. is a community-oriented organization offering climate change adaptation tools that are designed to incorporate sea ice monitoring data with local indigenous knowledge of sea ice conditions, which can contribute to a more informed decision-making with regards to land, water, and sea ice travel. Climate change is impacting Northern Indigenous communities faster than anywhere else in the world. As sea ice is vital to life in the North, connecting communities and essentially serving as a highway for people to travel and hunt for food, the smart ice monitoring systems provide invaluable data-driven insights into sea ice conditions in near real time. As an award-winning social enterprise, Smart Ice hires local Indigenous youth to manufacture and monitor their systems. To date, Smart Ice has operations in Nain, Nunatsiavut, Pond Inlet, Joe Haven, Nunavut, and monitoring equipment has been established in 24 communities across Inuit, Nunangat, with expansion ongoing. Dr. Trevor Bell is a university research professor at Memorial University of Newfoundland. His pioneering research on climate variability and change in Inuit Nunangat has had significant scholarly, community, and policy impacts. He has twice received the Arctic Inspiration Prize for Knowledge to Action Plans that benefit Arctic peoples. His most recent partnership, Smart Ice, has transformed into a social enterprise recognized by the United Nations for its novel climate solution and the Governor General's Innovation Awards for its truly exceptional, transformative, and positive impact on quality of life in Canada. Trevor is a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and the Royal Society of Canada. Catherine Wilson is a PhD candidate under the guidance of Dr. Bell at Memorial University of Newfoundland and Dr. Lubitschic at McMaster University. She is interested in new ways of doing research to support Inuit self-determination in research. She has been working with Inuit and Mitimatulik Nunavut since 2015 to mentor Inuit youth in mobilizing Inuit knowledge to aid community sea ice travel decision making. We're really excited, um, so we're about to start the conversation. So thank you guys so much for agreeing to talk with us. We're really excited to have you on and talk about your project, talk a bit about the theories that we've been discussing. Um, but do you want to start with a question, Bridget? Yeah, um, I know we've kind of talked a little bit about how we use a lot of theory just being in academia, but um, we're not necessarily sure how well that applies to work on the ground. So we just kind of want to hear a little bit about your work. I know um, theory might not necessarily apply to a lot of the work you do, but we just want to hear from a practitioner's perspective how um, the indigenous, um, indigenous communities and whatnot um, factor into your work. Catherine, did you want to tell your story a little bit as a, as a perspective on, on where you come from? And then I can say a little bit about it. Sure. So I did use uh, a bit of theory. So I'm part of mid to late career um, researcher, and I've been involved in Arctic science for over 25 years. And, you know, I was your typical researcher that, you know, went into field camps and worked on ships on sea ice without ever having a conversation with the, the nearest Inuit community where I was, you know, I was doing research on their land. And um, 
as I began to work, I, I had opportunities to work with, with uh, Inuit and uh, or Inuit organizations and colleges as I, I moved around in my career. And I just, I started learning and I, I didn't maybe have the language for, you know, what it was called, you know, decolonization or indigenous theories. But, you know, just in my heart, I knew that we needed to do things differently. And so I, late in my career, I went back to school so I could retrain myself because I was starting to think that we keep forcing Indigenous peoples um, with policies and, and programs, and it's, it's time for non-Indigenous people to change. And so I read that theory, and it, it helped guide me um, in my initial stages. And, um, but I also had to do a lot of reading on, on the history and of, of colonialization in Canada and just starting to understand um, my own comfort. Where do I fit in? How can I help? And even just getting comfortable with saying the word colonization. Right? It was like it's like a dirty word for non-indigenous people, I think. And um, by even just saying it, it's acknowledging that we're still, um, you know, colonization continues to exist. And so that's where I started and and heard about Smart Ice, and that's where I met met Trevor and my co-supervisor, Gita Lubacic, who, who worked with Inuit. And so I know I wanted to try to work with them in, in order to start doing research differently. So I can tell you um, a little bit about my background and how I got to be where I, where I am today. I mean, I have um, spent 30-odd years in the Arctic. Um, from uh, a master's student uh, going up into New Nazi with, um, and and then obviously more recently as a professor. But typically in those early years, I would have, um, I'm a physical scientist, classically trained physical scientist, ge a physical geographer, study landscapes, um, and especially in my PhD and postdoc work, that would have been very much um, on vast Arctic landscapes in a small one-person tent in small campgrounds, walking walking the landscape and maybe seeing a community from the airplane taking off and landing at a, at a, at a at an airport. And it's a long story, but so I'm going to shorten it up and say that I mean. Ultimately, at some point, um, I was became academically more interested in humans on humans on landscapes and human environment interactions. When I had an opportunity to go back to the Arctic, um, I brought that perspective with me, and specifically started to work with Inuit in uh, Nunatsiavut. Labrador Inuit in their homeland and spent years sort of understanding, listening to them and gaining a perspective on 
the context, historical context of research, under seeing the social inequalities in communities. And uh, I suppose changing, transitioning my, my research more into action-oriented or activist research in the sense that um, I was no longer interested in things that were maybe interested to, most interested to science, but I was more interested in things that were of interest to the community. And so community priorities became my priority and um, I became a research champion for that region for a while and sort of that's ultimately where Smart Ice began, but it was uh, in the context of much broader project that I worked with the community on, which was um, sustainable Nunatsiwit communities, which is looking at how these communities um, can become what what's envisaging or having uh, Inuit envisage envision the sustainability of their communities, the future of their communities, and looking at issues of housing, transportation, mental health. And that's when, um, so the issue actually almost 10 years ago with sea ice and, and challenges of, of a warm winter, dangerous sea ice conditions and a community priority to look at how can we bring technology to to bear on that. But it is perhaps uh, just by chance that it Smart Ice started up, I could easily be now talking to you about new housing designs that we worked on during that time period for Inuit uh, crafted sort of housing, or it could be related to permafrost thaw or something else. But it happened to be sea ice that grabbed my attention and took my energy and um, pretty much 10 years later, we now have a very successful nonprofit uh, work integration social enterprise that is uh, you know, meeting community priorities across over 24 Inuit communities across Inuit Nunungat. And not just bringing technology to bear on an issue, but I think once again, coming back to something that I learned a decade ago, which was the importance of Inuit knowledge or traditional knowledge in um, adapt, developing adaptation strategies. And uh, therefore, I'm a big believer in uh, the technology that Smart Ice brings to bear is really only there to augment that knowledge. And if that knowledge is somehow not uh, as strong as it could be than helping communities to strengthen that knowledge. That's very much uh, part of Catherine's PhD story, which I'm going to let her talk about. Yeah, I think that's kind of exactly why we're so interested in talking to an organization like yours and with people like you, because in international relations and a lot of, you know, the deep ivory tower of academia, we talk so much about theories, but so rarely do they actually touch on real life problems like you're talking about, like mental health problems with sea ice. And um, we're interested in, I guess, figuring out if there's ways that theories can be adapted to be more useful, or if it's just something that we should kind of take lessons from to use it in a more productive way in the future. 
maybe the question is also, can academics or researchers change who they are and their approach mm -hmm. to Absolutely. Um, addressing community concerns that or indigenous concerns? Because, you know, you can you can change theories or whatever and publish them in theoretical journals, but ultimately it is about uh, feet on the ground, action on the ground, and, and and sort of sometimes putting aside the academic and scientific interest. That actually kind of leads into another one of the questions I had for the group. Um, what do you feel that policymakers, journalists, academics, people in um, different positions from you could do to support one, the work that you're doing with supporting indigenous communities or two, just to um, aid in this desire to decolonize? Good question. Well, I always say one of the things that I learned most from uh, spending time in Inuit communities is I learned to listen. And I learned that uh, you know, pregnant silences are very uncomfortable for, for, for Southerners, but not for Inuit. Um, and it's, it's, the, it's the urge not to, not to fill silence with empty words. So that would be one, one observation, but that's a bit that's a bit deep, Catherine. Bring it back to reality. <laughs> well, you know the, the, the reading on indigenous uh, methodologies and approaches to research was really helpful uh, for me as a non-indigenous person because it it. Uh, made me think about things I hadn't thought about before. It made me think about the, uh, how how Western research is privileged, how um, how Western research is, is a colonial institution that separates people from the research, whereas Indigenous research approaches are you're part of the research, you're 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 building relationships. Um, you can't, you know, be separated from the research um, as they have in those sort of positive approaches. And they also gave guidance for non-Indigenous researchers as well, which I took, you know, I took to heart. It was about being reflexive. It was about looking at how I was raised and, and my own privilege um, and it, it just sort of gave me permission to start to think about things differently and to look at things holistically and to use my imagination. And, you know, that I didn't have to follow uh, typical Western research approaches and that I could do things differently. Where they, the limits of, of those theories are, though, is that everything is so context-specific. So you can read about it, but then you got to do it. <laughs> and then it's very different, right? So when Trevor was invited to Mithamatsalik um, in, uh, in Nunavut, because the community had heard about in, uh, Smart Ice and wanted 
to have some discussions about whether Smart Ice could get set up there. I was lucky that you know Trevor invited me along so I could just participate and listen. And over the two years of getting things set up, um, people kept seeing Trevor and I coming back. They they'd see us in the airport. They'd be like, "Oh, you're here again," and they were surprised, you know. And um, and then some people who'd seen me several times but had never really talked to me. All of a sudden started talking to me because they thought, okay, well, she keeps coming back. So, you know, maybe it's worth, you know, talking to her now. And when those conversations started, then they started talking. Uh, we, we started hearing about um, some of the issues they have with the way research used to be done and continues to be done. And, and then started talking to us about some of their research needs. And so that's sort of what sparked off the work that I was doing uh, and doing for my PhD was just after two years of, of building relationships and investing in those relationships, uh, whether it's going to the communities uh, in person or, or communicating with them by phone uh, or on Facebook and just really taking the time to um, be consistent in, in developing those relationships. Yeah, do you, you kind of mentioned um, with reading about indigenous methodology that it's, you know, often within academia, do you think that maybe making that less difficult to reach? So kind of maybe moving that to non-academic text rather than, you know, something very complex would be helpful or moving it to a different medium even to make it more accessible for people to kind of think outside of a Western context of research. I think we just need more people to actually, more action-based research, more people doing it rather than perhaps talking about it. You see it in all the policy documents um, about building capacity through research with Indigenous communities and, and using it in, uh, uh, Indigenous knowledge, um, you know, Proposals are even ranked based on, um, you know, how much your proposal talks about your work with Indigenous people. Um, but there isn't a lot of examples of it in practice. And so it's also pretty new stuff when you think about it. There is no checklist for how to decolonize uh, to, decolon to decolonization in general. And we are, I think, just at the beginning of this process. And so, you know, it starts in theory, and now it's, it, we're seeing examples of this moving into practice. And I think this moving into practice is, is a really important piece because the more you see it, um, the more it'll actually, actually get into academia um, where you will have courses on it right now most arctic students in in academia aren't getting courses on decolonization or indigenous theories or seeing a lot of research in practice so 
I, I think we're, we're at the beginning of, of, of a shift in, in how we start to do things, hopefully. Um, you kind of talked about there's a lot of there's a lot of words around um, in these policy documents and whatnot about action oriented things, but there's less action. Um, are there any policies or policy trends that Smart Ice is concerned with going on right now? Well, I would say that um, it sort of picks up from Catherine a little bit uh, and addresses your question. Um, so once again, if we turn the question around, and not all, and obvious, there's obviously there's obvious reasons why we're looking at it from a, a research or perspective, but you can change research as much as you like, but unless you empower Inuit and empower them to to be the researcher and to to be able to make decisions about what research goes on in their community, which are policy, so that is policy oriented, or having them adjudicate and evaluate uh, both projects before they start and during and after they're done, um, and allowing space for their knowledge to be part of, of uh, the, the, the the results and, and maybe the impacts and decision-making arising from research. I think those are crucial preconditions that are necessary. So in the case of uh, Smart Eye starting in Pond Inlet, as Catherine has described, it was um, us empowering the community through the creation of a community management committee that uh, that allowed Inuit there to, ha to have a voice in which to, once they felt comfortable with us, they had a medium and a voice to actually express their, their own research priorities, which is sort of when Catherine listened very carefully, she was able to pick up on and, 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 and move ahead with, with, with those, in, those Inuit uh, community members. So it's, it's, it's so that that's I think really important. So you can't just you need to empower in, indigenous peoples, but in this case, our Inuit in the community to have decision making. Catherine, did you want to add anything to that? No, I don't think so. I mean. When we you were doing the, the consultations in in, uh, in Pond Inlet, um, they did ask, you know, to set up some sort of advisory group um, to manage, you know, Smart Eyes for the community. And really, it started off as a communications group because they wanted to be able to take the work from Smart Eyes and be able to communicate it in a culturally relevant way. But after our initial meetings and, and as we were soliciting membership and things like that um, and started developing in terms of reference uh, which they developed themselves, it, it became clear that it was really a management committee and, uh, and they you know, self-named themselves, Sukumi, and even by doing it that way, 
gave us so much and gave them so much ownership and, and buy-in to Smart Ice right from the beginning. They And they also, you know, to give you a sense of that, I mean, they also determine who uh, who who's the membership of the committee um, when they want to change that, what their compensation is. They, that's what they they were able to decide on that. And so it was the beginning of of them really uh, taking ownership of uh, smart ice in the community. At that point, we weren't a social enterprise. Um, but it really, it, it it really sort of allowed them to say, you know, this is good, this is part of what we want to do, and uh, very much they've taken it in a direction that has influenced how Smart Ice, the social enterprise, has uh, uh, you know has has been developing in all the other communities that they were in, and we've we've also duplicated that approach as we expand into other communities. We haven't had the intensity as in Pond Inlet. I mean, I think we're at 18 face-to-face 18 -face meetings, Catherine, in the last um, four, three, four years, is it? I forget, we have it written down some five years. Um, so and that, that is, that is uh, none of them until COVID were virtual. They were all face-to-face -face by one or other or both of us in the community. So, you know, um, when return air tickets are three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, you know, that involves both an important financial commitment by us, time commitment by us, but something that we value because we, because we see it as the right way to to approach the work. You know, within this kind of methodological sphere of academia, we're always thinking, how can we make broad assumptions about things? But that clearly just doesn't work, you know, in this kind of field work, in this kind of really important work that you all are doing. One of the things that I'm thinking a lot about is, is it useful to make a broad methodology and then kind of have people take it context for context? Or is it not really helpful to do that since the context will change so much of what the actual work is. I think you certainly need to have some sort of guidance and training. I don't know if it necessarily needs to be a theory, um, but there, there certainly needs, in this sort of work, needs to be some cultural training for, for non-Indigenous um, academics who are working in the North. Uh, and learning about other uh, approaches uh, because you know there's there's different worldviews um, and understanding decolonization and the ongoing trauma uh, and resilience um, and and the desire of of a lot of indigenous peoples to reclaim um, their power for self-determination in, in research and in all aspects, um, you know, whether it's, it's government uh, or research or, or education and health, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I don't know whether 
a broad theory is appropriate, but I, I think it's more about having to take on the responsibility in academia and in other institutions about training people properly before, uh, just as before they go in um, and understanding that once they get into a particular community, the context will change. I don't have any more questions unless you do, Bridget. No, I think all my questions have been answered. Yeah. Um, is there any final things that you'd want to share with our audience? I think, well, both Kath and myself can talk a little bit more about, I think, I mean, to reiterate those principles about maybe, you know, that empowerment of the community, um, giving them that decision-making uh, power. But also, and as Catherine has alluded to, is changing your perspective. I mean, uh, Catherine can tell you her story herself, but I mean, essentially, she had to go through the transformation from wanting to be the researcher to ultimately training uh, youth, youth in the community to be the researcher and for her to be the mentor. Um, and that that is um, that 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 takes understanding and patience, I think, to and and and, and continually that reflection piece on yourself to sort of get okay, breaks on maybe getting ahead of the community in either uh, just maybe your enthusiasm or your your uh, rush to get something done, but really taking that time and it does take time to do that and I think Catherine did you want to add or maybe even provide the example maybe the, the, to illustrate that for yeah so I think I'll give a little more context on that so during one of our smart eyes meetings um, I think you've probably done some research on smart eyes so you know that it's a community-based CI monitoring program. Um, you know, our Sukumiate, a couple of our Sukumiate members were saying that they also really needed to, they wanted to take their Inuit knowledge about how to travel safely on the sea ice and, and share it with the community, especially to younger generations that maybe haven't had enough experience. And so that's what started off sort of a sub-project from Smart Ice, which is which is the PhD work. And we, we spent a year just talking about that at, at various meetings about how we're going to do this. And one of the most important things for Sukumia was youth involvement and for them to learn this Inuit knowledge about safe sea ice travel as we were doing the research. And so I thought about that a lot and and talked about it and and that's when we as a as a you know in a true co-production research project changed the status quo. And so my work is to train uh Inuit youth to do this research themselves. And so I haven't done all the training myself. I've brought other people up. Trevor's helped um, other academics um, from different universities. And you know what 
what has happened is, is that they've been facilitating most of the workshops in order to document CI's terminology. Um, we've done participatory mapping workshops where, um, uh, you know, experienced Inuits in the community know by season where the sea ice is safe and where the sea ice is dangerous. You know, they have these mental maps in their head, so they want to be able to share the mental map with the next generation. So we produce some maps, and so youth have been trained in GIS in order to produce their own maps. Um, we also did training on uh, how to interpret satellite imagery so that we could go through the uh, satellite archive that goes back to 1997 for Canada in order for them to develop their own baseline uh, and create a community ice atlas. So they were also trained in, in, uh, in how to interpret satellite imagery. So yeah, my role has changed really from, from being a re researcher to more of being a, a mentor and a trainer so I can help build, uh, you know, Inuit self-determination and research so they can start doing some of this, this, this work on their own. And, and this, this work is mobilizing their knowledge. And by them doing the research and choosing the methods, means that we're not, we don't have that issue you, that maybe you've heard about, about how do you incorporate Indigenous knowledge or how do you um, integrate Indigenous knowledge? Well, we're not integrating it into Western science. We're mobilizing it for community needs. And so it, it doesn't get changed. And the other reason why it doesn't get changed and it's, it's respected for its own value is because we're also keeping it in Indonesia. So a lot of the knowledge is in the words as well. Um, and so another thing that really changed in how we did things was that all of the meetings uh, are in Indonesia so they can communicate and exchange ideas in their own language. And uh, we do have interpreters there, but they're really for, for me for those uh, who are non-Indigenous uh, participants, but also for some of the youth who may not be uh, completely fluent to help them learn uh, uh, this sea ice knowledge to help them travel safely. So that was sort of a long explanation, but I hope that helps. No, absolutely. Just, just to add to that, I mean, I think the other advantage is um, and obviously we're adopting this approach in other communities, is to train Inuit to hold that knowledge, to be the scientist, to apply those, if you like, Western scientific approaches, whether it's satellite image interpretation or it's using ground penetrating radar or whatever. But they're using, they're the ones holding that uh, traditional knowledge, if you like, or Inuit knowledge of the land and the ice and using that and the technology to interpret what they see. So what Catherine has done with Andrew and others in the community is really, you know, created a whole different sea ice atlas that is not, that sort of is using Inuit to 
interpret the satellite imagery based on their knowledge of what is safe and unsafe ice, not what, you know, a university graduate in southern Canada would do at the Canadian Ice Service necessarily in Ottawa. It's a different, it's a different application and using, using that knowledge, which is, which is once again, empowering the community uh, to uh, answer their own questions with their own knowledge, but integrated with new approaches. Well, unless anyone has anything else they would like to share, um, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up for today. This has been such an informative mm -hmm. and wonderful discussion. I appreciate you all so much. Thank you so much for being willing to speak about your research. It's It's been so great. So that was a wonderful conversation. I feel like I learned so much. So much. That was, throughout the whole conversation, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we have the opportunity to interview these people. They're doing such amazing work. It was, I learned so much from that conversation. Me too. I think, I definitely... I think when I was thinking about going into this, I was like, you know, how is how is theory being applied in practice? But like, really, it's about switching it around and thinking like, how how should practice and things on the ground be informing theory? Totally. Instead of, you know, using this bottom up approach and mm -hmm. this sort of like grassroots approach, um, and building academia around that, which I feel like it's very intuitive, and I'm just <laughs> like, why don't why don't we do that now in terms of why shouldn't the things that we see inform our theory rather than we construct this theory just, you know, I don't know, out of thin air. And I know that's not how it works, but that's sort of what it feels like sometimes. In other sciences, not that political science is a science, but like, you know, in natural sciences, they do that where they learn what they do in the field and they come back and they apply it. But I think poli-sci is just its own thing. And so is international relations. So they don't do that as much for whatever reason. Um, I think one of the things that I took away just as a white woman and going into indigenous communities, really approaching this with a mindset of I'm going to aid where they need me and seek to empower rather than coming at it with this white savior complex that um, we talk a lot about in social justice mm -hmm. and political science. I, I think what's nice about that approach and like thinking of it that way are there's like some really like nuts and bolts things you can do to do that. Like, you know, rather than, I don't know, working on a project for three years in a university and then being like, I'm going to go out to the field for two weeks and I'm going to do this spending those three years with the community and being like, what do you need? Like, how can I work with you to address your needs? Like, that's something easy to do. Right. You need a sense of humility to go into this mm -hmm. and not like, oh, look at me with my PhD, my master's degree, my, you know, quote unquote education and recognizing that you just have one small piece of the knowledge that yeah. there is to know and you should be seeking knowledge from the people where it originated from. Yeah, and I think like having them have ownership of that knowledge is important. Like one thing that totally. Catherine said that was great was um, keeping the observations and knowledge that they have in the actual native language. And the translator was for her, not for everyone else. And I was like, what a great way to not only, as you said, empower them, but also to give them ownership of their own knowledge. Absolutely. Another thread that you know we've kind of been touching on throughout 
this whole little debrief is about giving the communities their own decision-making power mm -hmm. in terms of leaving it up to them what what they need and having them really set the direction for the research, for the project and not imposing these, um, like necessarily the researchers' visions mm -hmm. on, on the community. Yeah. And I think that takes time, which is not always easy to get. I, I don't personally have experience working in the field, but my understanding is it's always hard to get funding to go places, hard to, you know, justify doing longer than just in and out, which is an industry and academia problem rather than what maybe researchers want to do. So it starts with maybe providing more seeding funding opportunities. So that way you can, you know, go to a community for six months and actually spend the time there without worrying about how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to work this into my research? Mm -hmm. Making it a, an institutional priority mm -hmm. for sure. I exactly. think that would be step number one. I mean, what an amazing interview. <laughs> Let's just it say was again. so great. I cannot thank Smart Eyes enough for just giving us their time and their knowledge <laughs> and sharing their experiences with us. I'm not an Arctic researcher, and that's not the the focus of my research. But I I almost want it to be now. That was just such an incredible conversation. If you have any questions, either for us or the Smart Ice team, you can send them to disruptrcp at gmail.com or you can um, tag us, DM us on Twitter, and we'll be sure to either answer your questions or pass those questions along to Smart Eyes. Nunangat.